Section 17 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part 7. Frederick Chopin was far less influenced by external events than most composers of the time. We have the legend that the C minor étude was written to express his emotions upon hearing of the capture of Warsaw by the Russians in 1831. We hear a good deal, perhaps too much, about the national strain in his music. The national dance rhythms enter into his work, and to some extent the national musical idiom, though refined out of any real national expressiveness. Beyond this, his music would have apparently have been the same, whatever the state of the world at large. Nor are the events of his life of any particular significance. He was born near Warsaw in Poland in 1810, the son of a teacher who later became professor of French in the Lyceum of Warsaw. His father had sufficient funds for his education, and the lad received excellent instruction in music, in composition chiefly, at the Warsaw Conservatory. At nine, he appeared as a concert pianist, and frequently thereafter. He was a sensitive child, but hardly remarkable in any way. There are child love affairs to be recorded by careful biographers with fancied influences on his art. In composition, he was not precocious, his opus one appearing at the age of 18. A visit to Vienna in 1829 decided him in his career of professional pianist, and in 1830 he left Warsaw on a grand concert tour. In 1831 he reached Paris, where he lived most of his life thereafter. His opus two was announced to the world by the discerning Schumann in the famous phrase, Hats off, gentlemen, a genius! In 1837, through Liszt's machinations, he met Madame de Devant, known to fame by her pen name George Sand. She was the one great love affair of his life. Their visit to Mallorca, which has found a nesting place in literature in George Sand's Univers à Majoc, was a rather dismal failure. The result was an illness which his mistress nursed him through, and this began the continued ill health that lasted until his death. After Mallorca came more composition and lessons in Paris, with summer visits to George Sand at her country home and occasional trips to England. Then, in 1849, severe sickness and death. All that was really important in Chopin's life happened within himself. No other great composer of the time is so utterly self-contained. Though he lived in an age of frenzied schools and propaganda, he calmly worked as pleased him best, choosing what suited his personality and letting the rest go. His music is, perhaps, more consistently personal than that of any other composer of the century. It is remarkable, too, that the chief contemporary musical influences on his work came from second- and third-rate men. He was intimate with Liszt, he was friendly with the Schumanns, but from them he borrowed next to nothing, yet he worshipped Bach and Mozart. 
Nothing of the romantic Parisian frenzy of the 30s enters into his music. The only influence which the creed of the Romanticists had upon him seems to have been the freeing of his mind from traditional obstacles, but it is doubtful whether his mind was not already quite free when he reached Paris. All that he did was peculiarly his. His choice and rejection were accurate in the extreme. In his piano playing, he represented quite another school from that of Liszt. He was gentle where Liszt was frenzied. He was graceful where Liszt was pompous. Or rather, his playing was of no school but was simply his own. His imitators exaggerated his characteristics, carrying his rubato to a silly extreme. But no competent witness has testified that Chopin ever erred in taste. The criticism was constantly heard during his lifetime that he played too softly, that his tone was insufficient to fill a large hall. It was his style. He did not change because of his critics. He was not, perhaps, a virtuoso of the first rank, but all agreed that the things which he did, he did supremely well. The supreme grace of his compositions found its best exponent in him. Ornaments, such as the cadenzas of the favorite E-flat nocturne, he played with a liquid quality that no one could imitate. His rubato carried with it a magical sense of personal freedom, but was never too marked. Was not a rubato at all, some say, since the left hand kept the rhythm quite even. As a workman, Chopin was conscientious in the extreme. He never allowed a work to go to the engraver until he had put the last possible touch of perfection to it. His posthumous compositions he desired never to have published. His judgment of them was correct. They are, in almost every case, inferior to the work which he gave to the public. Just where his individuality came from, no one can say. It seems to have been born in him. From Field he borrowed the nocturne form, or rather, name. From Hummel and Kramer he borrowed certain details of pianistic style. From the Italians he caught a certain luxurious grace that is not to be found in French or German music. But none of this explains the genius by which he turned his borrowings into great music. Emotionally, Chopin ranks perhaps as the greatest of composers. In subjective expression and the evocation of mood, apart from specific suggestion by words or program, he is supreme. He is by no means merely the dreamy poet which we sometimes carelessly suppose. Nothing can surpass the force and vigor of his polonaises or the liveliness of his mazurkas. In harmony, his invention was as inexhaustible as in melody, and later music has borrowed many a progression from him. Indeed, in this respect, he was one of the most original of composers. It has been said that in harmony there has been nothing new since Bach, save only Chopin, Wagner, and Debussy. But however radical his progressions may be, they are never awkward. They have that smoothness and that seeming inevitableness which the artist honors with the epithet perfection. Chopin's genius was wholly for the piano. In the little writing he did for orchestra or other instruments, mostly in connection with piano solo, there is nothing to indicate that music would have been the richer had he departed from his chosen field. In a succeeding chapter, more will be said about his music. As to the man himself, 
It is all in his music. Any biographical detail which we can collect must pale before the preludes, the etudes, and the polonaises. An average music lover about 1845, being questioned as to whom he thought the greatest living composer, would almost undoubtedly have replied, Mendelssohn. For Mendelssohn had just the combination of qualities which at the time could most charm people, giving them enough of the new to interest and enough of the old to avoid disconcerting shocks. Our average music lover would have gone on to say that Mendelssohn had absorbed all that was good in romantic music, the freshness, the pictorial suggestiveness, the freedom from dry traditionalism, and had synthesized it with the power and clearness of the old forms. Mendelssohn was the one of the romantic composers who was instantly understood. His reputation has diminished steadily in the last half-century. One does not say this vindictively, for his polished works are as delightful today as ever. But historically, he cannot rank for a moment with such men as Liszt, Schumann, or Chopin. When we review the field, we discover that he added no single new element to musical expression. His forms were the classical ones, only made flexible enough to hold their romantic content. His harmony, though fresh, was always strictly justified by classical tradition. His instrumentation, charming in the extreme, was only a restrained and tasteful use of resources already known and used. In a history of musical development, Mendelssohn deserves no more than passing mention. Of all the great musicians of history, none ever received in his youth such a broad and sound academic education. In every way he was one of fortune's darlings. His life, like that of few other distinguished men of history, Macaulay alone comes readily to mind, was little short of ideal. He was born in 1809 in Hamburg, son of a rich Jewish banker. Early in his life, the family formally embraced Christianity, which removed from the musician the disabilities he would otherwise have suffered in public life. His family life during his youthful years in Berlin was that which has always been traditionally Jewish, affectionate, simple, vigorous, and inspiring, and his education the best that money could secure. His father cultivated his talents with greatest care, but he was never allowed to become a spoiled child or to develop without continual kindly criticism. He became a pianist of almost the first rank and was precocious in composition, steadily developing technical finish and individuality. At the age of 17, under the inspiration of the reading of Shakespeare with his sister Fanny, he wrote The Midsummer Night's Dream Overture, as finished and delightful a work as there is in all musical literature. At twenty, he was given money to travel and look about the world for his future occupation. As a conductor, chiefly of his own works, and to a lesser extent, as a pianist, he steadily became more famous, until in 1835 he was invited to become conductor of the concerts of the Gewandhaus Orchestra at Leipzig. In this position, he rapidly became the most noted and perhaps the most immediately influential musician in Europe. From 1840 to 1843, he was connected with Berlin, where Frederick William IV had commissioned him to organize a musical academy. 
but in 1843 he did better by organizing the famous Conservatory at Leipzig, of which he was made director, with Schumann and Moscheles on the teaching staff. In 1847, after his tenth visit to England, he heard of the death of his beloved sister Fanny, and shortly afterward died. All of Europe felt his death as a peculiarly personal loss. What we feel in the man beyond all else is poise, one of the best human qualities, but not the most productive in art. He knew and loved the classical musicians, Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. Indeed, the resurrection of Bach dates from his performance of the Matthew Passion in Berlin in 1828. He also felt, in a delicate way, the romantic spirit of the age, and gave the most charming poetical pictures in his overtures. All that he did, he did with a polish that recalls Mozart. His self-criticism was not profound, but was always balanced. In his personal character he seems almost disconcertingly perfect. We find ourselves wishing that he had committed a few real sins, so as to become more fully human. His appreciation of other musicians was generous, but limited. He never fully understood the value of Schumann, and his early meeting with Berlioz, though impeccably polite, was quite mystifying. His ability as an organizer and director was marked. His work in Leipzig made that city, next to Paris, the musical center of Europe. Though his culture was broad, he was scarcely affected by external literary or political currents, except to refine certain aspects of them for use in his music. 8. There were more reasons than the accidental conjunction of the Schumanns and Mendelssohn for the brilliant position of Leipzig in German musical life. For centuries the city had been, thanks to its university, one of the intellectual centers of Germany. Being also a mercantile center, it became the logical location for numerous publishing firms. The prestige and high standard of the Thomaschule, of which Bach had for many years been cantor, had stimulated its musical life, and even when Mendelssohn arrived in 1835, the Gewandhaus Orchestra was one of the most excellent in Europe. The intellectual life of the city was of the sort that has done most honor to Germany, vigorous, scholarly, and critical, but self-supporting and self-contained. Around Mendelssohn and his influence there grew up the Leipzig School, with Ferdinand Hiller, W. Sterndale Bennett, Karl Rennick, and Niels W. Gade as its chief figures. Mendelssohn's emphasis on classicism and moderation was probably responsible for the tendency of this school to degenerate into academic dryness, but this was not present to dim its brilliancy during Mendelssohn's life. In the Leipzig circle, Schumann was always something of an outsider. Though he was much more of Leipzig than Mendelssohn, he was too much of a revolutionary to be immediately influential nor did he have Mendelssohn's advantages in laying hold on the public. For the first twenty years of his life, his connection with music was only that of the enthusiastic dilettante. Though his father, a bookseller of Zwickau in Saxony, favored the development of his musical gifts, his mother feared an artistic career and kept him headed toward the profession of lawyer, until his inclinations became too strong. In the meantime, 
He had graduated from the Gymnasium of Zikau, where he was born in 1810, and entered the University of Leipzig as a student of law. His sensitiveness to all artistic influences in his youth was extremely marked, especially to the efflorescent poet and pseudo-philosopher Jean-Paul Richter, Jean-Paul, on whom Schumann later based his literary style. In his youth, he would organize amateur orchestras among his playfellows or entertain them with musical descriptions of their personalities on the piano. When at about 17, he arrived in Leipzig to study in the university, he plunged into music, in particular studying the piano under Friedrich Weich, whose daughter, the brilliant pianist Clara Weich, later became his wife. An accident to his hand, due to overzeal in practice, shattered his hopes of becoming a concert pianist, and he took to composition. He now devoted his efforts to repairing the gaps in his theoretical education, though not until a number of years later was he completely at home in the various styles of writing. His romantic courtship of Clara Weich culminated in 1840 in their marriage against her father's wishes. Their life together was devoted and happy. The year of their marriage is that of Schumann's most fertile and creative work. His life from this time on was the strenuous one of composer and conductor, with not a few concert tours in which he conducted and his wife played his compositions. But more immediately fruitful was his literary work as an editor of the Neue Zeitschrift für Musik, founded in 1834 to champion the romantic tendencies of the younger composers. Toward 1845, there were signs of a failing in physical and mental powers, and at times an enforced cessation of activity. In 1853, he suffered extreme mental depression, and his mind virtually gave way. An attempted suicide in 1854 was followed by his confinement in a sanatorium, and his death followed in 1856. Schumann is the most distinguished in the list of literary musicians. His early reactions to romantic tendencies in literature were intense, and when the time came for him to use his pen in defense of the music of the future, he had an effective literary style at his command. It was the style of the time. Mere academic or technical criticism he despised, not because he despised scholarship, but because he felt it had no place in written criticism. He set criticism. himself to interpret the spirit of music. True to romantic ideals, he was subjective before all. He sent his soul out on adventures among the masterpieces, or rather his souls, for he possessed several. One he called Floristan, fiery, imaginative, buoyant. Another was Eusebius, dreamy and contemplative. It was these two names which chiefly appeared beneath his articles. Then there was a third, which he used seldom, Meister Raro, cool judgment and impersonal reserve. He set himself to make war on the Philistines, namely all persons who were stodgy, academic, and dry. He had a fanciful society of crusaders among his friends, which he dubbed the Davidsbund. With this equipment of buoyant fancy, he was the best exemplar of the romantic idealism of his time and race. The Neue Zeitschrift für Musik, 
organized in connection with enthusiastic friends, bravely battled for imagination and direct expression in music during the ten years of Schumann's immediate editorship and during his contributing editorship thereafter. Schumann's announcement of Chopin in 1831 and of Brahms in 1853 had become famous. In most things, his judgment was extraordinarily sound. Though he was frankly an apologist for one tendency, he appreciated many others, not excluding the reserved Mendelssohn, who was in many things his direct opposite. Sometimes, particularly in his prejudice against opera music, he disagreed with the tendencies of the time. After hearing Tannhäuser in Dresden, he could say nothing warmer than that on the whole he thought Wagner might some day be of importance to German opera. But though Schumann was thus limited, he had the historical sense and had scholarship behind his articles, if not in them. During a several months' stay in Vienna, he set himself to discovering forgotten manuscripts of Schubert and the great C major symphony first performed under Mendelssohn at the Gewandhaus or concerts in 1839, owes its recovery to him. Schumann worked generously in all forms except church music. At first he was chiefly a composer for the piano, and his genre pieces, pianistic in a quite new way, opened the field for much subsequent music from other pens. In them his romantic fervor best shows itself. They are buoyantly pictorial and suggestive, though avoiding extremes, and they abound in literary mottos. In 1840 begins his chief activity as a song composer, and here he takes a second place only to Schubert in lovableness and second to none in intimate subjective expression. Between 1841 and 1850 come four lovely symphonies, uneven in quality and without distinction in instrumentation, but glowing with vigorous life. In the last ten years of his life come the larger choral works, the Faust scenes, several cantatas, the, and the opera Genoveva. Throughout the latter part of his life are scattered the chamber works, which are permanent additions to musical literature. These works and their contributions to musical development will be described in succeeding chapters. These are the preeminent romantic composers. What they have in common is not so evident as seems at first glance. The very creed that binds them together makes them highly individual and dispartite. At bottom, the only possible specific definition of romantic music is a description of romantic music itself. Romantic is at best a loose term, and it happens always to be a relative term. But a brief formal statement of the old distinction between Romanticism and Classicism may be helpful in following the description of Romantic music in the following chapters. For the terms have taken on some sort of precise meaning in their course down the centuries. Perhaps the chief distinction lies in the aesthetic theory concerning limits. The Greek temple and the Gothic cathedral are the standard examples. The Greek loved to work intensively on a specific problem, within definite and known limits, controlling every detail with his intelligence and achieving the utmost perfection possible to careful workmanship. The Greek temple is small in size, can be taken in at a glance. Every line is clear and definitely terminated. 
Details are limited in number, and each has its reason for existing. The work is a unit, and each part is a part of an organic whole. The medieval workman, on the other hand, was impressed by the richness of a world which he by no means understood. He loved to see all sorts of things in the heavens above and the earth beneath, and to express them in his art. Ruskin makes himself the apologist for the Gothic cathedral when he says, Every beautiful detail added is so much richness gained for the whole. The medieval cathedral, then, is an amazing aggregation of rich detail. Unity is a minor matter. The cathedral is never to be taken in at a glance. Its lines drive upward and vanish into space. It is filled with dark corners and mysterious designs. It is an attempt to pierce beyond limits and achieve something more universal. Here is the distinction, and it is more a matter of individual temperament than of historical action and reaction. The poise and control that come from working within predefined limits are the chief glory of the classical. The imagination and energy that come from trying to pass beyond limits are the chief charm of the romantic. Let us never expect to settle a controversy, for both elements exist in all artists, even in Berlioz. But let us try to understand how the artist feels towards each of these inspirations, and to see what, in each age, is the specific impulse toward one or the other. End of section 17